0: Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church Podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Exodus. Enjoy the message. If you have a Bible, you can get ready. We're going to um, be looking at an interesting story in the life of Israel which actually begins to repeat itself in many ways. Uh, The themes and the points of chapter 16 are repeated in chapter 17. And so we're going to be looking at these two chapters together. Last week, we saw uh, the people of God arriving at the bitter spring of Mirah, and a pattern of behavior began to emerge in Moses' congregation. And you would have noticed this word congregation is being used now fairly frequently, and that's because they really are a congregation under Moses' leadership. But what begins to emerge in the congregation is grumbling and complaining. And today, as we follow the Israelites in their journey, they're going to travel through an area called the Wilderness of Sin, which is the desert area between Elam and Sinai. So remember they came to Elam, which was an oasis, and there were springs of fresh, life-giving water. Well, now they've left Elam and they are journeying towards Sinai, but along the way is a desert. It's the wilderness of sin. Now, what's interesting is that there is irony here, and it's not intentional. Um, It's called the wilderness of sin because it's named after the peninsula of Sinai. And so Sinai, the word sin there is linked, and that's why it's called the wilderness of sin. But we can't help but see the irony because this is exactly where we see the sinful nature of the Israelites really uh, stand forth in their cycle of grumbling. Now this area, this region that they find themselves in was a hot and a dry and a rugged region, and no doubt there were sparse resources, and so very quickly they run out of food, as we're going to see in chapter 16, there's a food problem, and then in chapter 17 there is again a water problem, and so they run out of water in chapter 17. So we're going to look at this under three main headings. We're going to look at the problem of the wilderness. We're going to look at the provision in the wilderness. And then we're going to look at the parable of the wilderness. So number A, the wilderness problem. Let's read together Exodus 16 from verse 1. The text says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So it hasn't been too long. It's been a couple of weeks, and they are now setting out towards Sinai. Verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord In the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then down to verse 8. Because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, there are a few things we need to note here about grumbling. The first thing we see is that grumbling seldom exists on its own. Look again at verse 2. It says there that the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You see, grumbling, like gossip, loves to gather friends into your particular pity party. And so they too have gathered friends together. It says the whole congregation. Now, I mean, it is a slight exaggeration. I I do think that there were those that were a little bit more gracious, but certainly the bulk of the people are grumbling and they've gathered friends to support their complaints. And so the yeast of sin here has spread through the whole loaf and the whole congregation is moaning, and they've all joined together in their pity party. The second thing we see about grumbling is that grumbling tends to exaggerate things in order to feel good about itself. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is astonishing. They literally say that they would rather have had food and slavery than freedom and life with hunger. Now, we know that they don't really believe that, but that's the excuse they are making. This is the point that they've gotten to. And as they fed off one another, they've largely exaggerated the situation to the point where they're saying, we'd rather have the meat of Egypt. In other words, we'd rather be slaves in Egypt and have full stomachs than be free and hungry. Now, we know they don't really believe that, but they've got to the point now where they think they know better. They, they've they perceived that God's plan is not working. And so they're prepared to say, listen, we were better off in Egypt. At least we had food there. It's an exaggeration, but that's what grumbling does. I know that in a marriage, grumbling can be very harmful, and often it leads to exaggerations. Things like, You never do this or that, or you always do this or that, and and that can lead to lots of dangerous arguments. Words like you never or you always, it's an over-exaggeration because you're trying to make a point, but your eyes are fixed on yourself. The third thing I want to just say about grumbling here is that there is a difference between grumbling and groaning. When I speak about grumbling and the sin of grumbling as we see it here, We're not talking about lamenting or groaning or even disagreeing. You see, because in the Bible, in particular in the Psalms, we see lots of examples of godly men who say things like this, God, I'm tired, or God, I'm scared, or I'm hurt, or I'm struggling, or God, where are you? And those are cries of lament or cries of grief or simply groans. But grumbling, on the other hand, is not a cry for help. Grumbling is saying to God, hey God, I know what's better. I know what's better and I know how to run things. Instead of saying, well, this really hurts, but I'm willing to submit to your wisdom and to your ways, grumbling says, this is my life and I'm going to do things my way. Clearly, you think God has lost control of the situation. And so you grumble and complain. You point fingers at God as if he doesn't know what he's doing. And then fourthly, what we see in this particular story is that grumbling against God is actually a form of practical atheism. And this is seen more in chapter 17. And so I want to just journey over quickly to chapter 17 because we see the same problem emerge. But it's really ramped up to a whole new level. Have a look at this in chapter 17, verse 1 through 3. We read, and it sounds very similar. If you compare chapter 16 in the start and chapter 17 in the start, they sound very similar. Verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You see the parallels There's the same excuses, the same kinds of grumbling, but did you notice verse 2? You see, they're not only grumbling. Verse 2 says they're now quarreling with Moses. Verse 2, look at that. It says, the people quarreled with Moses, and that Hebrew word quarrel is actually a whole lot more than just grumbling. They've actually leveled it up to a whole new stage of complaint, because that word in and of itself is often used in legal disputes to express the intention of a lawsuit action against someone. And so in other words, what's going down here in chapter 17 is that the grumbling that has begun with chapters 15, at the end of chapter 15, is really ramping up as we see it here in chapter 17 And they are saying to Moses, We're bringing a lawsuit against you because you've got false motives. You're a fraud. And they're accusing him of bringing them out of Egypt only to kill them in the wilderness. But then Moses sees through this and he says to them, Hey, guys, listen, your complaint is not with me. If you have a complaint, it's with God. But the problem is they've lost sight of God and they've fixed their eyes on themselves. And they think that, that, that God is about to abandon them. And so they literally have fallen into practical atheism. They, they, they did believe in God, but now they're acting like they don't believe he even exists. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating, have a look at what happens in verse 4. Verse 4, it says, So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. You see where it's led to? It's really got bad. They want to now kill Moses. They grumbled. Then they want to bring a lawsuit against him. They are quarreling with him. Now they are ready to stone him. And here's the point. Constant grumbling is dangerous because it hardens our hearts. It hardens our heart towards God and it hardens our heart to the people around us. And this is the point that the psalmist makes in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a commentary on what's happening in the wilderness story. Have a look at verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 95. It says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. That's this particular point in chapter 17. Why? When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Do you see the argument here? The argument is, you see, if we go back to chapter 16, in particular verse 4, there it says that what God is doing in bringing them to this place where they acknowledge their need is God is testing them. God is putting the Israelites to the test because he wants them to listen. He wants them to listen and to obey and to diligently follow his voice. But now the roles have reversed. In chapter 17, the accusation is now they are testing the Lord. They've taken it upon themselves to be a higher authority than God. Instead of God testing them, they are now testing the Lord, which is why here in Psalm 95, it says, when your father's Put me, God is saying, when you put me to the test, although you had seen all my work, and they had seen it. They had seen God provide supernaturally. God had provided incredibly, which is why this kind of grumbling can lead to a practical atheism. They've seen God, but they act like he doesn't exist. And so that's a a brief analysis of the problem in the wilderness. There's a whole lot more we could say, but we don't have time. I want to move on to the second observation, and that is the wilderness provision. We've seen how the Israelites have responded to their problem, but how does God respond? How does God react to this testing, this quarreling, this grumbling people? Well, let's have a look. Exodus 16 first from verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he starts off with their accusation. We're we're hungry. And have you brought us out of the land of Egypt just to kill us? And now God responds. And he says, no, I'll show you why I've brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to provide for you once again. So in other words, God responds to their grumbling with grace. Have a look at this. Verse 7. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the lord I, I, how that is the most remarkable verse you are going to see the glory of God because of your grumbling surely it should be you're going to see the wrath of god you're going to be you're going to see the judgment of God against you no you're going to see the glory of the Lord why for For what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8, and Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And so God's response is not anger or wrath or judgment. God's response is Provision. God responds to their grumbling with grace. what an incredibly gracious and kind God. He's going to send quail. He's going to send meat by the evening. And he's going to send manna, bread, every morning, fresh bread. Now, not only is God gracious, but look at this. He's also generous. The text goes on, and you can read the story, the rest of chapter 16 yourself. It goes on, it says that they went out to collect meat every night, and they went out to collect bread every morning for six days, but not on the seventh. On the seventh day, they were to rest. Look at verse five. It says, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. In other words, so five days, they're going to go out every morning, every day, and they're going to gather the Lord's provision. God is going to supernaturally provide for them. And on the sixth day, there's going to be a double portion. God is going to supply two roasts and two loaves of bread, and it's going to supply all the people because they must save it up for the following day when they are to have a day of rest. Verse 21, have a look at this. It says, morning by morning, they gathered it. Each as much as he could eat. Not only is God gracious, but God is generous. God is supplying a lot of food. And they get to have a Sabbath rest for the food they never worked for. This is incredible. God is incredibly gracious. God is incredibly generous. And yet, when you read the story, some of them still disobeyed. Some took too much. And they kept it because they were meant to eat. Whatever you gather, you must eat. Don't keep it for the next day. Why? Because God's going to provide for you on the next day. You don't need to store it up. But they didn't listen. And so they stored it up. And when they opened their, 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 their supply that they had gathered in the morning, it was full of worms. And so those who were hoarders who didn't trust God for the next day, their food was ruined And then those who didn't trust him on the seventh day decided they would get up in the morning and go out and look for food, but there was nothing. And so all of this to say that it really exposes the human problem in light of God's incredible graciousness. Now, we're not going to talk a lot about the Sabbath instructions here, but just one thing I want you to notice, and that is that the the institution and the principle of the Sabbath that started way back in the beginning in Genesis is still being adhered to even before the law gets added. We haven't even got to Sinai where the Sabbath law gets instituted, and yet we see it here already at work in the people of God. Now, I want to move on to the second incredible provision. So that's chapter 16's provision. We got meat at night and bread at the day, and God has been incredibly gracious and, and, and generous. Now, look at chapter 17. Once again, God is being gracious even though they've ramped up their grumbling, God is gracious once again. Have a look at verse five and six. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. So now they've been complaining about no water. Now let's just pause there. Chapter 16 has just happened. God has provided for them. And on this morning, when they have no water, they went out to collect the bread that God has provided. And yet they are now complaining that there is no water. And so God says to them, take the elders, take the the key leaders in Israel, take them with you. And then he goes on and says, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock. So God says he's going to meet Moses there with the people of Israel. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And how would he have done that? Well, it would have been the cloud, the cloud of God, the very presence of God with the people would have been manifest visibly as a theophany on the rock at Horeb, which is what? At Sinai. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now, a few things we need to notice here: this the same staff that that struck the Egyptians with plagues is being used here. And 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 you would you would think if you were just a, a betting man that he's going to use it on the elders. You know, he's gathered the elders together, and he's like, listen. The people are grumbling. This thing has gone a whole, to a whole new level. Let's, let's take the elders who are responsible for the people and let's give them a beating. Let's, let's take the staff of God and let's bring down judgment on the people of God. But that's not what happens. Judgment doesn't fall on the people. Judgment falls on the rock. And the rock is struck with the staff of God's judgment. And Moses strikes the rock and the rock splits. And from the rock flows water that feeds and quenches the thirst of the Israelites. And so we we see the, the contrast between the wilderness problem and the wilderness provision. We see the grumbling of the people and we see the graciousness of God. This brings me to the third point, the wilderness parable. You see... Whenever I do a Christian wedding, one of the things that I like to draw people's attention to, and that is that this wedding, the ceremony, the the dinner, the flowers, the vows, the gifts, everything about the wedding, there's something bigger going on. There is a bigger reality that all of this points to. And so we know that in Ephesians 5, it tells us that the coming together of a husband and wife as one flesh is a picture of a more profound reality, and that is Christ and the church. Well, here in the wilderness, we have a very similar situation. What's happening here in the wilderness with the people of God and their grumbling, it's a picture of something much more profound. You see, what's happening in the lives of the Israelites is a profound picture Of salvation and sanctification. You see, they're on their way to the promised land and they're not there yet. But on the way to the promised land, there are internal problems and there are external challenges. We're going to pick up that point a little bit later. But Paul is aware of this reality in the New Testament that that this wilderness situation, that this wilderness picture is pointing to a more profound reality. And he gives us the details. So go with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 from verse 1 through 11. And we see something here that is remarkable. In verse 1, Paul writes, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Paul sees the wilderness narrative and there's more to come after Sinai. But at this point, he sees that all of what the Israelites are going through and all of what's been um, taking place is a picture that points to the reality that we see in Christ. He is saying that everything about the Exodus and the wilderness is really about the Lord Jesus. It's about Christ's life and his relationship to his people, the church. You see, how else do we make sense of the New Testament speaking about salvation being redemption? You see, if we don't have the Passover redemption, then how do we understand Christ's redemption? You see, in the Passover, the people who were rescued were bought at the cost of the blood of the Lamb. They were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, when Paul talks about redemption, we know exactly what he's talking about because we have the picture. Or, for example, when Paul says that we are slaves to sin, how do we know what that looks like? What does that mean? Well, we have the Israelites in Egypt, and they were slaves. And so we see their deliverance making sense because it's now our deliverance. And we see that that the exodus of the people of God is actually what happened to Christ on the cross. And so it begins to inform all of what Christ does for us. And Paul really hits this home in verse four where he says this, and look at it again in verse four. It says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them And the rock was Christ. This is a profound picture. In Exodus chapter 17, we have one of the clearest, most profound pictures of the gospel. You see, when Moses took that staff, which was always used for judgment, and he struck the rock, you would think he should be striking the people of God. They've grumbled and quarreled with the Lord after all that he's done for them. But no, he strikes the rock. He strikes who? Christ. Paul says the rock is Christ. And the judgment of God falls on Christ instead of the Israelites. You see, even back then, it was Christ who was paying for their sins. It was Christ who was covering for their iniquities. And in that moment, as the rock was struck, it is a picture of Jesus on the cross where he was struck with the judgment of God. And from him flows life-giving waters. Now, Jesus himself makes this very point. Jesus sees the wilderness narrative as pointing to him also. Have a look at this in John 6, verse 31. Our fathers, this is Jesus speaking, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is now making the same connection. This wilderness narrative, this wilderness narrative, Story is a parable pointing us to Christ. He goes on, verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, the 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 wilderness story finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Jesus is saying that all life-giving food, all soul-quenching water can only be found in Christ. Jesus Christ alone is sufficient for your soul and to satisfy you through the journey. You see, the journey is going to be hard. And when chapter 17 ends, what we find is a battle. And so let's look at this battle because this is how the, the chapter ends. The final picture in the wilderness is of a battle. And we get this idea that, that God has abundantly provided for the people. He's given them food and he's given them water from the rock. And now, they, now they're chilled. Now they're happy, happy campers. They're camped out and they're enjoying the blessing of God. Although they've grumbled, God's blessed them. And the next minute they get attacked. Have a look at this at the end of chapter 17 from verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, 'Choose choose for us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now I remember when I first heard this story, I was a young new Christian, and uh, and I was told that this particular story is a model for prayer. This is a good model for prayer. No, we must wrestle in prayer, and, and if we're going to persevere in prayer, you need to put prayer warriors around you, and, uh, and that's going to help you to persevere in prayer. Now, all of that is true, and, and that would be a good model for prayer, but that's not what this text is about. Actually, what this text is about is the staff of God is bringing judgment on the Amalekites, You see, throughout the book of Exodus, the staff has always been representative of God's judgment. Whenever Moses raised the staff, when he raised it over the Nile, the Nile turned to blood. When he raised the staff, then the locusts came, then the frogs came. When he raised the staff over the waters of the Red Sea, they came back in on the Egyptians. And once again, he is now standing on the hill and Joshua has gone out to fight And Moses raises the staff, which is a picture of God's judgment. Now, the only way to make sense of this is to understand that what's happening here is because God had made a promise. God had made a promise that this nation, this people who now he's rescued from Egypt, he's going to bring them into their land. And so whether there is an enemy from within, whether it's grumbling or whether there's an enemy from without, the Amalekites, God will keep his people. Why? Because he's made a promise that through this people, there will come a deliverer. One like Moses, yes, but better than Moses. A king like David, yes, but a better king. And so no matter what the Israelites are going to face, problems from within and problems from without God will keep them. Why? Because from this people is going to come one who is going to be born of a Jew, born under the law, who will be the deliverer, the final ultimate king who will deliver his people, not just from slavery geographically, but from sin and Satan and death. And so God's people will be preserved all the way through until the coming of the Messiah. Now, here's how I want to wrap this up. What we actually see at the start of their wilderness journey and at the end of their wilderness journey, because the next, the next stop is Sinai, the two bookends of the wilderness journey are battles. The first battle was at the Red Sea. You remember they were camped out at the Red Sea and the Egyptians are bearing down on the Israelites And they think, well, the only way we're going to get out of this is if we fight our way out of it. And then God miraculously rescues them. So that's the first battle before they enter the wilderness. The second battle is now at the end of their wilderness journey. Now, here's what I want you to see. The two bookends of this wilderness, the parable story here is that the wilderness is the Christian life. The Christian life is a wilderness journey. And the wilderness journey is... Is filled with numerous battles. Battles that come from within your own life, your own flesh, your own sinful past, and even from without the world, the culture, things in the world that want to battle against us and pull us down. Now, here's what I want you to see. What I want you to see is that the Red Sea battle actually is a picture of justification. You see, when you and I became a Christian, there was a battle. That raged. There was a battle that raged just like a, at the Red Sea. And do you remember what happened? Do you remember what happened? There was a battle for what was about to happen there. Here's what happened. Look at this in verse 14 of chapter 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. What? In other words, the only way you can become a Christian is if the Lord does the work. You just stand there. You be quiet. That's what God told Moses. God told Moses, listen, this is going to be a picture of justification. This is going to be a picture of salvation. And so you have no role to play. The people of God must stand by and watch. But that's not what we see in the last battle. In the last battle against the Amalekites, what is God's word to Joshua and to Moses? No, go out and fight. And so I want you to see these two bookends. At the first battle, we don't fight. God does all the fighting. The salvation belongs to the Lord. But at the end, the wilderness journey, before we reach the promised land, there are battles to be fought. And so if the first battle, the Red Sea battle, is a picture of justification, your salvation, then the last battle is a picture of sanctification. The battle against the Amalekites is a picture of sanctification. And that means we fight. Look at this in verse 9, chapter 17, verse 9. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And here's what I want you to see. The wilderness journey is a tough journey. And I know for some of you you have been Christians for a long time, and you can testify to this, that there are many battles along the way. And and the the battle of sanctification, the battle of living out the Christian life is a fight. And in order to fight well, you need a couple of things. You need some friends to go with you into battle. Don't go into the battle on your own. The first battle, that's already won. That's, That's God's doing. God saves. It's all by grace. The Red Sea battle, it was all grace. But the Amalekite battle... The, the, the journey of the Christian life is one that we don't fight alone and and we and neither do we just sit back and watch no listen if you sit back and watch and there is turmoil that comes from within problems from within and problems from without and you decide to just sit back, you will get destroyed. The picture of sanctification is that we engage but the, here's the good news we don't engage alone like Joshua. We gather friends and we go to war against sin and we go to war against Satan and we go to war against the influences of the world. And then we look up and what do we see? When we look up, we see Christ. We don't see Moses. We see Christ who ascended the hill of the Lord. And there Christ, when he stretched out his hands at Calvary, he won the ultimate victory. And so we realize that we're not in this alone. We have people around us And we have the Lord Jesus Christ with us. This is what this wilderness journey is all about. We are with the people of God. And there are times where we got to fight together. We got to stick together and we got to fight together for the glory of God and for our own sanctification. And so I really pray and trust that this has been helpful for you and that you'll be strengthened through this word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage that is so illuminating and enlightening and so instructive. And as the Apostle Paul says, it's been written down for our instruction, that we would learn from it, that we would grow from it, that we would realize that the wilderness journey, until we reach the promised land, there are going to be battles. There are going to be battles to be fought along the way. But the good news is that standing up on the hill is the one who was struck. The Lord Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, who was struck with the the very sin that was ours, was laid upon him. And the wrath of God fell on Christ. And the good news is that he swallowed death. And in swallowing death, he was raised from the dead and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father where Christ lives to intercede for us. And so we thank you, Lord, that as we go through our wilderness and as we journey towards heaven, the promised land, we can look up. And when we look up, we see Christ. We see the rock of ages who was split for us supplying life-giving water. And so when the wilderness is harsh and when the heat of life drains us, we can turn to Christ. Even in the battle, we can turn to Christ and He is there. He is the bread of life that satisfies and He is the water of life that quenches our thirst. And so Lord, prepare us for the battle and satisfy us with Christ's sufficiency. Satisfy us with the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.